Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Dun, dun, dun. I always wanted to be a pretty little girl. I always knew you wanted to be a pretty little girl. I'm glad you finally uh, admitted to it, and I'm glad I have this on tape. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I can see that being used out of context now. <laughs> I wish I had a soundboard where I could just push a button and inject like, the, a sound clip. It's just like, well, I really don't like that. I want to be a pretty little girl. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, a date which will live in infamy, a world at war, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Hello and welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 72 and I am Scott Gardner. 72? I don't know what hell number it is. I'm just throwing something out there. It's 52. You know. 52, 72. What's the difference really? The number of new titles DC is putting out in September? Oh, don't. Don't even. Don't even. <laughs> no, we've had this conversation, so we don't need to have it again. You're just winding the monkey, damn it. Well, you're easy to wind. And I am Michael Bailey, and we have another exciting, exciting episode of Tales of the JSA with another exciting, exciting issue, mostly, of uh, of All-Star Squadron. And I guess we're just going to jump right into it this week. No preamble, no witty, well, witty in quotes, I might add. Half-witty. Half-witted quotes. 
<laughs> but this week we are covering All-Star Squadron number 18, which has a February 1983 cover date. It was 60 cents in the United States, 25p in the UK, and 75 cents in Canada. Hmm. Why is it only 25 I don't know. Maybe Andrew Leyland can tell us. The title of this issue is Vengeance from Valhalla. It was written by Roy Thomas. Artists were Adrian Gonzalez and Rick Hoberg. Lettered by John Costanza. Gene D. D'Angelo is colorist. Gene D. D'Angelo. Gene D'Angelo, jackass, is a colorist. Len Wein is the editor. And the quote for this issue is, When I listen to Wagner, I feel as though I am hearing the rhythms of an earlier world. Adolf Hitler, speaking of the myth-influenced operas of, I almost said Richard Wagner, but it's Richard Wagner. So, Johnny Quick is rushing to the temporary headquarters of the All-Star Squadron after receiving a summons from Liberty Bell, and because he's whipped, he will do so. He takes a moment to help a woman catch her purse, checking out her legs in the process, before reflecting on the events of the last issue. Mentioning that he doesn't think that Robot Man and his girlfriend are going to last very long. Johnny spots who he thinks is the Sandman swinging like Batman, and I almost said something on a rubber band, and bumping into <laughs> Superman. Uh, Eating from a garbage can. <laughs> exactly. Swinging like Batman to the temporary All-Star HQ. A radio news reporter stops Johnny for a moment and tries to rake some muck about the JSA and their war status, but a stiff wind tears the supposed Sandman loose from his line, and Johnny rushes in to save the day, uh, keeping Sandman from becoming street pizza. The supposed Sandman fires another line and swings into the building. Meanwhile, a large figure holding a massive hammer stands on a building and acts 16 different types of mysterious as thunder and lightning crackle around him. The reporter asks Johnny again about the JSA, but the speedster says he doesn't know what the guy is talking about. Johnny runs into the meeting room and realizes pretty quick that the guy he thought was Sandman wasn't, in fact, the Sandman, but was in a very, sand, very Sandman-type outfit. The supposed Sandman is introduced as the Tarantula, and after a bit of acrobatics and wall crawling, and a mention that somebody actually called him Spider-Man, which apparently happened in the original Golden Age story, Liberty Bell announces that the members of the JSA have each mysteriously disappeared. With Hawkgirl's help, Bell has come to the conclusion that the JSA heirs are not working on a case. And Hawkgirl has gone out west to check on some things while the All-Stars wait for a call from the president. Johnny voices his suspicions of the tarantula since he, you know, looks like the Sandman. And this leads us to Chapter 2, The Secret Origin of the of tarantula I almost said sandman <laughs> of the tarantula the tarantula is secretly johnny law mystery writer while working on a book about the mystery men phenomenon johnny interviewed deanne belmont a woman that has helped the sandman on some capers or with some capers i don't know maybe maybe he couldn't eat all of them it's kind of weird deanne gives johnny i was just gonna say those little hors d'oeuvre things <laughs> Deanne gives Johnny a sketch of a costume she designed and the Sandman rejected. She allows him to keeping keep it, adding he'll make better use of it than the Sandman. And for somebody who's hooked up with Wesley Dodds, there is a lot of sexual tension between these two characters. 
few nights later, Deanne hears of a mysterious fire. With the Sandman out of town, she puts on the costume and roars into action. At first, she doesn't know what to do, After, but after seeing one of the arsonists pull a gun, she hits the gas on the Sandman's roadster and goes to ram him. The Nazi scumbag gets a lucky shot in, and the car explodes! And before the agents can get too excited, the tarantula appears for the first time and beats the hell out of them. He makes quick work of the Nazis, but fails to notice a trio of their compatriots who draw a bead on him. The real Sandman shows up, and a few ass-kickings later, the men rush to help... The two heroes rush to help Deanne. Unfortunately, she was already dead when they managed to dig her out of the car. Sandman takes her body and leaves. That sounds a lot creepier than I really wanted it to do, but okay. (laughs) A few nights later, Wesley Dodds visits her grave and promises to wear the costume she designed for him because wearing the old one would hurt too much. Later, he meets up with the tarantula. Must ride up in the crotch or something. (laughs) Plus, she was buried in it. It's kind of creepy. Later, he meets up with the tarantula and the two exchange secret identities and the Sandman gives Johnny his blessing to continue wearing the costume, basically saying, if reporters can't tell us apart, nah, that's their problem. Anyway, later Sandman got rid of the cape and hooked up with a boy sidekick, an orphaned nephew of Deanne's. Because Sandman is among the missing heroes, Johnny had to get involved in the search. Johnny, Johnny Quick, Johnny Quick, not Johnny Law, suddenly becomes very antsy and wishes for something to happen. Suddenly, after a vow of vengeance to no one, Thor, God of Thunder, attacks and promises a severe beatdown to Sandman, the hero that done him wrong. The tarantula steps up to the plate and even corrects Thor's supposed English before nearly getting beamed by the god's hammer. Robot Man, Steel, and Johnny Quick try to take the Thunder God down, but they themselves are taken out. It is up to Tarantula and Liberty Bell to take care of the red-haired menace, Though a Liberty Bell boot to the head and a web net courtesy of Tarantula fail to defeat their adversary. Thor breaks free and roids out a little more before Tarantula maneuvers him to strike, evades the blow, and watches as Thor hits the electrical wiring. The shock knocks him out, and in the aftermath, they figure out that this Thor is an old enemy of Sandman that may actually have discovered a real Hammer of Thor. Suddenly, Bailey, the reporter from before, calls to them and says the president contacted him because their phone lines are down. Apparently, there is a light on top of the Trilon, one of the leftovers from the World's Fair, that is blinking a challenge to the All-Star Squadron in Morse code. With, the All-Star, with that, the All-Stars rush off to investigate the matter. Next stop, the 1939-1940 New York's World's Fair grounds. Awesome. All righty, going into the historical notes, courtesy the All-Star Companion Volume 2. Tarantula notes that the all, to the All-Stars that a radio announcer called him a Spider-Man, a reference to his origin in Star Spangled Comics number 1. As related in issue 18's letter page, the nine-page chapter explaining why Tarantula and Sandman wear similar purple and gold outfits in the earlier 1940s had a curious genesis. Earlier, the Brave and the Bold editor, Dick Giordano, had suggested Roy Thomas script a backup story for that mag to be penciled by Adrian Gonzalez. Soon after the story was drawn, however, changes were made to Brave and the Bold, perhaps related to Giordano's promotion promotion to managing editor of DC, so it was decided to use the nine-pager in All-Star Squadron, and Roy Thomas wove the rest of the issue around that. 
Later scribes resurrected Sandman's early confidant, Deanne Belmont, who was killed off in issue 18, but that quote-unquote survival happened after the obliteration of Earth-2 in the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And those tales have no bearing on the fact that in the 1982 story, she definitely died and became West Dodds' ex-girlfriend in the, in the same sense that a bird in the... Yeah, where's that continue at? Ah, uh, Okay. Famous Monty Python yes. sketch was an ex-parrot. <laughs> Alrighty. The letters page says that at a creation convention in San Diego, Roy Thomas had recently heard a new fan coin term for what the what was being done in All-Star Squadron. Retroactive continuity. He always liked that term. He's gotten used to its short-form retcon, but he dislikes the later phrase, continuity implant, which sounds like something painful done by a plastic surgeon. <laughs> Tarantula makes a path- passing reference to Faye Emerson, an actor who, as it turns out, would soon be a daughter-in-law of uh, President Roosevelt. In the flashback chapter, Jonathan Law, Tarantula, already a successful writer of mystery novels, interviews Deanne Belmont for a book he's writing on those masked heroes who po- are popping up all over. In, ni- in 1940s Star Spangled Comics, Tarantula's alter ego was called John Law, but that had a specific connotations as the personification of the police... So Roy Thomas offered to refer to him as Jonathan. This issue marks Adrian Gonzalez's last All-Star Squadron work. Aww. He on Penciler. And in a, of another RT, uh, Roy Thomas co-creation, Eric, uh, Son of Thunder. And with number 18, Gene D'Angelo takes over as Squadron's colorist. It's a lot of notes. Yeah, it is a lot of notes on this one. It uh, it definitely. See, I didn't read ahead on this because I, I literally just got this book. So this actually addresses one of my biggest notes. Was uh, I'm not the biggest Sandman follower in the world, but I knew that during the uh, what was the name of that series, Sandman Mystery Theater, that Diane yep. Belmont was a recurring character. So I was like, how the hell does this work? So yeah, yeah I'm glad lived, they explained that. Yeah, she lived all the way up. Till just around the time of the JSA series, if I'm correct. right, yeah, and I, yeah. And I always kind of liked that. I, I I have like a full run of that series. Oh, do you I really? Read it? Yeah, yeah. I picked it up fifty cents a piece. Wow. So I've got one or two. I want to say I have like the first one or two issues of that series, and that's I, I've never read it. I've heard excellent things, but I just haven't haven't made time to read them. But I knew that she had been around. But I, I figured it was some crisis deal, but... Oh, she yeah. had been around. Oh, yeah. Around. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help myself. So, um, what do you got on this one, sir? Uh, I got a, a fair amount of notes on this one. First of all, um, the whole thing with Thor. Oh, also, my biggest note. Thank God, this is the last Kubert cover. I don't like this one at all. It really looks like there's a, a JSA meeting and this biker just drops out of the ceiling in the middle of it is what it really looks like. But um, I, I just get a kick out of the fact that, you know, now obviously Marvel Comics has had Thor in their comic. You know, Thor has been a character with his own series over at Marvel, you know, at this point, what, 20 years? Yep. You know, so... They have to be careful not to, you know, get too close to that character. But I think it's really funny that the Thor in this issue actually looks more like Marvel's Zeus 
than he does Marvel's Thor. Except for the winged helmet, there's really not any resemblance between the two of them at all. This guy kind of looks like... Uh, he almost looks... Uh, he kind of looks like Zeus, you know, Marvel's Zeus, wearing, like, the Viking prince's outfit. And then they keep calling it a hammer through this entire issue. This is not a hammer. This is more like a mace or like a uh, like a club. It, I don't really, I don't think of this as a hammer. A hammer to me is something that has a, a definite, you know, blunted head on it, you know, for, like, smacking nails or something, you know, and this... Uh, you know, what what would you call this? Would you call it a club or a mace? So, more of a mace than anything else. Yeah. Um, let's see. Page one. Uh, great opening splash of Johnny Quick uh, running down the street. The car behind him, and I'm surprised that this is not a note in the All-Star Companion. The license plate on the car is OU8, uh, OICU812, which I thought was pretty cute. <laughs> I didn't see that. I got a kick out of that. That's great. Um, let's see. Page two. Ah, here we go. Uh, Johnny Quick is thinking to himself as he's running along. He says, I wonder how Robot Man's making out since that shyster's uh, office back in the courts have declared him human. Must be tough on him and his uh, gal friend Joan, knowing they can never, and then he, his thought gets interrupted. No, knowing they can never what, Johnny Quick? Knowing knowing they can never what? <laughs> Who says they can never, you know... Play, play Canasta. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, my mind was going totally different places. Um, okay. Seriously, why can't Tarantula be called Spider-Man? If there is a Golden Age precedent for it, and I realize, you know, Spider-Man's a huge deal over at Marvel Comics, but if there's a... Golden Age precedents already for this character being called Spider-Man. I, I kind of wish they had gone with that because while I really like the character of the Tarantula, I really do. The name never worked for me because oh, I disagree completely. Really? Yeah. Um, I'll get that to that in my notes because uh, I don't want to step all over your your point. So. Well, no, I mean, I I didn't really have a point beyond the fact that you know Marvel also has a character called the Tarantula. So you know, if you if you're already working that angle, then why not just go for the more obvious one of of the Spider-Man or the Spider? Just frankly, the Spider. Because well, my problem with the Tarantula is that he is basically a Spider-esque character. Yet Tarantulas don't, for one thing, they don't resemble this guy at all. But also tarantulas aren't a typical spider in the sense that this guy's pretty much he, he's like spider-man if spider-man had to kind of come up with his powers on his own you know if spider-man didn't have you know natural spider powers that's kind of how it works with the tarantulas he came up with a web gun and he came up with um what do you call it uh suction cup things for climbing well so he invented all of the spider-man like powers that that he seems to exhibit so i don't know why he doesn't come up with a more spidery name tarantula just doesn't it's not a typical spider uh, here's yeah but here's the thing it has a very pulp feel to it and the costume he eventually gets has a very pulp feel to this it. This is true. And I think this is why it's why I like it so much because calling him spider it would be like Marvel 
creating a character named Batman or Superman. This is true. I think Spider-Man is one of those. There, there's certain characters you don't touch. Like it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, who gives a crap that there's a Scarecrow in the Marvel universe and a Scarecrow in the DC universe? You know, right? I mean, it's it just you know that's that's a villain one and two. It's obvious that the DC version is probably going to be a little more well known because he's been on a couple of animated series. Right. The uh, but but having you know DC. I think it's more of a gentleman's agreement type thing. Because obviously they couldn't have a title called Spider-Man. Right. I almost sounded like uh, J.K. Simmons in, uh, <laughs> in, in the Spider-Man films. That's very odd. Um, I just don't think, you know, because that basically goes, oh, so you're going to do a character called Spider-Man? Okay, we're going to do our character called Superman. Right. And then they just stare at each other over the table and everything's dropped. So I I just think you know it's cute that he was called Spider Man, but I like the tarantula a lot. Don't quite like what was done with him in Golden Age, that Paul Smith, um, James Robinson miniseries from ninety three ninety four. I was just going to mention that too because there's the mention in here of Jonathan Law writing his book or, you know, wanting to write a book mm-hmm. about the mystery men that actually we see that happen. Eventually that becomes a part of, uh, that James Robinson series that you're talking, you know, talking about golden age. But the thing James Robinson leaves out is that he was a successful novelist before that. Cause he's painted in that series as a guy that had one good book and that's all he's ever done. Wow. Uh, and that kind of bugged me, but it, but it, it, it was done that way specifically cause his character had to be, a certain type of character. Right. So I see it, but I don't necessarily agree with it. So page nine, right in the center of the page there, there's a shot of, uh, the Sandman in his classic green suit and gas mask and trench coat and Cape looks like he's being played by Cornelius from the planet of the apes in that pose right there. While I really like the art in this issue, I noticed that some of the, the faces and some of the poses are a little wonkier than they were last time around, I think. But I still like well, it. Well, that, well, that's not Wesley Dodds, though. Right, but still, I mean, just look at the, the, the <laughs> gait of that character. He, and, and the face he's making is very chimpanzee-like with the gas mask. It does. It totally looks like a monkey right there. Um, Let's see. Diane Belmont got addressed. Page 22... All right, so the the big battle with uh, quote unquote Thor is all wrapped up, and then suddenly somebody who is I think it's Liberty Bell says, "I remember now because I've been studying the JSAers cases myself. He turned out to be a blah blah blah." And she goes into this whole explanation of who this guy. Now you remember. Now you remember when the whole thing is. I mean, it's just ah. Uh, you know, it was just one of those things. It's like, are you are you shitting me, really? Now's the point where you're gonna, oh yeah, that's right. There was that Thor guy. And no, no. As soon as this guy popped up, if you if you had an inkling who he was, I think you would have realized it right away. You know, it was just a bit of a stretch for me. Um, <laughs> and then uh, let's see, panel three. Um. Oh yeah, we're <laughs> you've got a uh, firebrand leans down to check on him, and she says, uh, "And we may just find out this man's still alive." 
And she says it with an exclamation point. This man's still alive. And uh, Steele says, after taking high vo- uh, enough high voltage to kill an elephant, I think this begs the question, were they trying to kill this guy? I mean, <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you look like you could take it. Yeah, I guess. But it's like, wow, really? I mean, you I guess you were intent to uh, to take him out. Uh, let's see. Page 23. Last page. Panel two. Oh, yeah. I love this. Um, what is up with that? lamp on the it's in they're in an alley and you've got this lamp on the wall that looks like it belongs in some old lady's house it's just <laughs> right. what the hell is that doing in the alley i don't know it has a lampshade and everything i mean did they actually really have these back in the 40s i I'm, i've never seen that before it just seems really odd. Not, having not lived in the 40s, I cannot neither confirm nor deny the existence of this lamp. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just, it, it's not like a street light or, you or know. people, ah, uh, sorry, that was a journey reference, I oh, apologize. I just, and it's street life, not, so. I have, I have no, <laughs> no clue what's going on there. Um. What else have I got? I believe, if I'm reading this properly, that this issue sees the very first Meanwhile column by Dick Giordano. And I thought that was really great because I loved these back in the days. I really miss Dick Giordano. It makes me feel incredibly old that he's not with us anymore. And uh, I, I used to really like his Meanwhile columns. I like this one because it touches on... Uh, a lot of things that were in DC's near future. One of them being the upcoming uh, series, 12 issue series, tentatively titled History of the DC mm-hmm. Universe. Mm-hmm. This, of course, would become Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I remember reading about this and being so excited for the whole thing. Um, it also teased the uh, JLA Avengers team up that I had to wait over 20 years for. And, of course, nothing, nothing survives that kind of anticipation. While I enjoyed JLA Avengers, it just couldn't live up to 20 years of anticipation. I, you know, I was dying for that. It also says uh, at Christmas for 1982, we would see a second um, Teen Titans X-Men team up, sadly. And that never materialized. I would have loved to have known what, you know, who was attached to that and what that would have been all about, because I really liked the first one. Um, and it also mentioned that uh, that we'll see DC's first uh, graphic novel. I, for the life of me, can't remember. What is DC's first graphic novel? Do you know? I can't remember. I can't remember either, because the first one I think I ever bought was number four, I want to say. It was Metal Zoic, which was really great. I need to read that again, because I... I it's been years since I read it, but I think that was the first DC graphic novel I ever bought was Metal Zoic, and I really, really enjoyed it. But I think that was like it was either number four or number six. I can't remember what the first one was. It may, it possibly could have been that Jack Kirby one that was supposed to have tied up all the the Hunger Dogs. Hunger Dogs, yeah, it may have might have been it. Yeah, it might have been that one. I really wish, and this is how you do it: you collect all of these Meanwhile columns. Hmm. Into one into one hardcover, and you give the proceeds to actor. That's the, not uh, a bad idea at all. Um, 
you know, kick some back to his family, but, you know, basically make it kind of a charity thing. Because I would love to just have a collection of these. And, and if I had the time, I would sit here and scan them and make up a blog uh, and just post them so people could read them. Because, you know, it was it was his soapbox, basically. Right. And And Dick was very different from Stan Lee. In that, you know, he hyped the stuff, but it wasn't like, hey, true believers, guess what's coming? We're the most awesome things ever. If you don't read our books, you're gay, or whatever <laughs> Stanley would say. Um, Stanley never said so that. That I explains it. Okay, all right. You solved that mystery <laughs> for me. All right. <laughs> but, uh, no, but I love these things, and I love what I love about them now is that they're time capsules, and you can spot the beginnings of things. Like the history of the DC universe, right? Like you know, okay. Then it was. I mean, and in the very first, which I have scanned, the very first uh, house ads for Crisis, it was called "History of the DC Universe," and um, it's just fascinating that that turned into Crisis. Right. So, uh, this is neither. Realize, oh, I'm sorry. Sir, uh-huh. uh, just as a quick aside, uh-huh. uh, that. Uh, that we're about a year and four months away from crisis. I know. I'm hoping in that year and four months I'll finally be able to score a copy of uh, of the absolute crisis. I had an opportunity. This was what a couple months ago. Now I could have got it for fifty four bucks. And like a dumbass, I didn't jump on it. I wish that I had because I have not been able to score one since. And I certainly have not been able to score one for for that price or cheaper. So I really wish I had jumped on it. But that was when we were in our hiatus. And, uh, and I wasn't sure we were coming back. And honestly, if I get that book, it's going to be specifically because I need it for the coverage that we're going to do on, on the series and all. So I really, I wish I had just gone for broke and, and got it. But see, the thing is, is I, I already have the, the first one they put out, you know, the, the first hardcover, which they, mm. you know, they touted as the only time that that would be done. If I'd have known, you know, what, a couple years later that they were going to do the absolute, I'd have waited. I wouldn't have bought the first one. So, you know, it's like, I have spent more money buying crisis over and over and over again it's ridiculous i mean i have spent a lot of money on crisis on infinite earth and you know this is neither here nor there but man for i man i wish my memory was here's my problem i listen to podcasts when i'm in the car nine times out of ten i'm in the car when i'm listening to a podcast so to all of my friends and and all the people whose podcasts i do listen to i apologize that i'm so shit about feedback it's not that I'm not listening. It's not that I'm not paying attention. I'm in the car. So it's like you might make a great point, and I'm like, oh, i got to remember to write to so-and-so and let them know I loved you know, this, this episode or you know, I disagreed with this point or I thought they made an excellent point, whatever. But I'm in the car. So you know, it's not like I can just whip out a, a pad and paper and jot down notes. you know. So, but anyway, I was listening to something the other day, and damn, I wish I could remember what show it was. And I wanted so badly to write in and correct them on, on something that they had said about the monitor's first appearance. Because they were like, yeah, and the monitor first appeared in such and such. And they had it so wrong because um, the monitor actually first appeared in one of the war books of all things. 
I mean, that was the first full reveal of of the monitor and what yeah, it actually was... looked like was in was like GI combat or some shit. Yeah, that was the first time we saw him. His actual first appearance was uh, in the shadows. Was in um, was in New Teen Titans, I believe. Yeah, but I, I mean, as far as like what he actually looked, you know, the full body, you know, full reveal was. In, I want to. I'm pretty sure it was uh, GI Combat or something like that. But yeah, we'll we'll get to all that stuff eventually. But mm-hmm. I'm excited about that. I really. Me too. Am. I, I think that that promise of crisis being down the road and the way that you and I want to handle that series when we get there I think that was the main motivator for having my people get with your people and get this podcast rolling again was because uh, you had talked about that on must have been views I think where you were you were talking about that and you had such you know just the way you described it and you had such enthusiasm for the project and everything I remember listening to that and being like <sighs> that sucks that we're now that's never going to happen, you know? So that, that was for me, that was the, the, the number one motivator behind, well, you know, your people called my people, the negotiations were rather intense. You know, there's a lot of the, you know, due to the non-disclosure agreements that we've all signed, we really can't, you know, talk about the specifics right. Right. of those negotiations. Um, I, I, I will say, I still kind of resent you calling me a, Cackleberry, because I don't even know what the hell that is. <laughs> um, but uh, but but I called you a douchebag several times. So um, all I'm going to say is yeah, I that- can live with that. It was the prima donna that that's what really hurt my feelings because I'm not I'm not a prima donna. Damn it! Really? What kind of M and M's don't you want in your dressing room? <sighs> the green ones. Well, there you go, prima donna. <laughs> That's it. Your people are going to have to call my people again. <laughs> well, all I got to say is thank you to the uh, the law firm of Dewey, Screw Em, and Hal. Um, <laughs> they really came, they came through in a pinch for us, and I uh, I, I, I can ne- we can never repay them enough. I mean, that, that's just basically what it boils down to. <laughs> uh, the importance of a good comedy bit, folks, is not to laugh right after the comedy bit, give two seconds like Scott did, and then laugh. That is the appropriate. Otherwise, you just ruin everything. This is true. This is very true. Uh, let's see. That's pretty much all I got for notes, other than I just I wrote a quick one here, just said, kicking into high gear, which is how I feel like this series is moving along. I feel like this is the point where we are truly kicking into high gear. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, we're, we're moving, right, moving right along. Um for me, this issue has a lot of sentimental attachment because the first issues of All-Star Squadron that I bought were, uh, as I explained way back, almost two years ago, uh, in the very first episode. Um, the very first issues I bought were out of a 30-cent box at this place called uh, Beachhead Comics in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And it had, like, issues 1, 2, 3, 11... 18 and 24 and a couple after that. So when I finally got around to reading them that summer in 95, a little after I bought them, this was one of the issues that I read. And I just completely gloss over the suck ass villain of this issue. 
I really do. He's not even a factor. Right, yeah. I, I don't think I even had a, other than the fact that he looked like Zeus, I don't think I even had a single note about him. Because, yeah, it's it's a great issue despite him, not because of him. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole opening with Johnny Quick checking out the girl's legs, um, the muckraking reporter right there at the beginning, the artwork. And really, I just was right away taken with tarantula as a character and i think that's why golden age hit me so hard is because i was such a fan of the all-star squadron and even though it's called you know it's now called jsa golden age that is an all-star squadron book simply because of the characters that uh james robinson focused on the tarantula goofy costume to the side i just really like the concept that this crime novelist Basically, I mean, it's like murder she wrote with a superhero, um, you know, where instead of just, you know, always finding the bodies, uh, you know, she actually <laughs> it'd be awesome to see. Angela. Lansbury. I was just going to say, <laughs> I hated that show. But if Angela Lansbury had been out there in a superhero outfit kicking ass, I had totally <laughs> watched that show. <laughs> that show had a very specific purpose. It was for old people to watch and go, I remember them to right. all the guest stars that pop up. I think that they should have had uh, Angela. I don't know what her name was on that show, but they should have had uh, Angela Lansbury. Who, who was it? Her last name was Fletcher. I think her first name was like Julia or something. Yeah. Have her team up with Barnaby Jones and they both uh, become costumed. <laughs> masked men and go out and kick ass are you kidding me <laughs> i think that would have barnaby been. jones yeah really i'm okay. serious i'd have watched that um but i really like this origin and you know i joked that there was sexual attention uh, even though it's like a one-page scene and, and you know jonathan law is definitely attracted to her you know dm belmont just basically said hey go be a superhero Right. Which hands him the costume design. And I love that. Con- it is so primal superhero comic book genre that this guy likes superheroes, so he goes and becomes one. You know, there's no, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Batman and Superman have the greatest, and Spider-Man, they have the three greatest origins in comic books ever. Because unless you do something drastic, you can't fuck those up. You know? You can't, you know, it, it's kind of hard to mess up. But I also kind of like, at the same time, the guy that goes, well, I'm just going to go out there in a costume and beat some ass. And that's exactly what this is. And I felt for this story when I first read it, and I feel for it now that, you know, she rushed out to see what it was like to be the Sandman, to take care of things, because Wesley was out of town, and she gets killed. And the whole thing of Wesley finding her body and then talking at the gravestone, the artwork here is utterly heartbreaking. I mean, it's just that those three panels on the bottom of page 14, just if you, if those don't touch you somehow, you don't have a soul. I mean, it, it breaks down to be that simple. But just the, and the artwork in that seven pager is just fantastic. Though it, they do like, look like the Black Pirate most of the time through this story. But um, I do think it's a little wonky though, that, that Wesley Dodds is like, well, we have different masks. So that's how they'll tell us apart. 
wait, I'll get rid of my cape. Because I love the classic Sandman look, but I also kind of love his superhero outfit, too. Yes. Spandex suit. I mean, yellow and purple are two garish colors, but the palette was kind of limited back then. So, um, I love the fact that this guy beats everyone's ass, and it's up to Liberty Bell and and Tarantula. And Liberty Bell on the top of page twenty kicks this guy in the head with her riding boots. <laughs> But as suck-ass as this villain is, that shot on page 20, that middle panel of him breaking out of those of the, of the, of the net that Tarantula casts on him is actually pretty damn cool. And it just goes to show that good artwork will make a crappy villain look good. Thou be doomed! Um, there's, a great, there's a great bit of dialogue uh, when he shows up. Uh, I have brought it to kill thou. Are you kidding Tarantula says, I don't know what boulderized version of Shakespeare, the King James Bible, you got that bad Elizabethan English from, but liar, I be, fo- I be Thor. Yes, that's what they all say. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, as he's dodging a hammer, thou is the subjective form, not the objective. And hey, that was close. So I just like the fact that this writer is giving him a grammar lesson <laughs> in the middle of everything. Oh man, just um, just kind of a. It, it's really interesting. You got a really solid two thirds, then you've got the fight with Thor, which is the weaker part of the issue. But then you're really excited at the end because they're all running off to trouble. Uh, I like where they're running to. Yes, to the world's fairgrounds. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and 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 we're about to get a headquarters, folks. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, this this is exciting for me. Uh, but that's all I got. I, I I just can't help but like this issue. Uh, I, I really can't. It's just it just it makes me happy every time I read it because it reminds me, you know, summer of '95 kind of sucked for me personally. So it was kind of it's kind of nice to have a positive memory from that time period. So uh, you had me thinking. I was trying to remember what my uh, what my first issue of All Star would have been. And I uh, hopefully I'll recognize it when we get there. But off the top of my head, I'm not sure. But I know it. See, I read all these earlier issues, and which is again probably owes into why I don't have as fond of memories about them, or or as clear memories about them is that you know these were ones that I had to track down years later in back issue bins. I, I came in much much later than this, so I actually knew a lot of these characters, you know, from later on in the series and. By the time I came in, they were already established in, you know, the headquarters that they're about to get with, you know, settings and, and characters and situations, you know, that were, will come along later. So this was kind of filling in the backstory for me. So I'm, I'm not as attached to the issues that we've done so far as the stuff that will come later. But I'm, when, when I got to this, you know, this last page, and they were saying, you know, to the to the you know New York World's Fairground. I was like, hell yeah, you know, here we go. So I, I like that. That's that's why I say definitely kicking into high. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. <laughs> um, the ads are pretty much the same ads from last time. We got an M Network ad on the inside cover. Uh, I didn't interrupt a thought, did I? Yeah. Uh, no. Okay, I guess not. Uh, we have the behind the candy counter Bubba Yum ad. 
Uh, I remember seeing this thing a thousand times in comics as a kid. Yeah. Um, just a kid saying yum, and then an adult trying bubble yum, which is apparently like a sexual experience or something. <laughs> there is a Revel Magnum PI 308 GTS Ferrari model kit. And a uh, you can uh, win a full-size Atari video arcade game. Yeah, that, that was kind of cool. So, uh, I wonder what it's like to own an arcade game. It's awesome. <laughs> um, make your first adventure an endless quest book from TSR. So what, we got the. What game the, is that? Is that Centipede? Um, it's it just says Atari. It doesn't say a specific game. That one that's and pictured I, though, I think, is Centipede. Well, it might be Centipede. I uh, I never really liked Centipede. Really? Uh, no, I, I just it, it, it was like Qbert. It just bugged the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. I just sucked at it. I didn't. I couldn't get very far in it. But I liked the game. Qbert, however, I totally agree with you. Qbert was just a fucking frustrating game. We have got a chance to deface your comic book and lower the value of it with a lifesaver's <laughs> lots of fun word jumble. Um, oh, let me fill that out real quick. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, another Sergeant Rock uh, playset ad from Remco. Sign of quality. A number of, another copy of Superman in the case of the snake shapes. <laughs> uh, the very first Meanwhile column, as we mentioned before. And we have a Amidar video game ad. Tired of seeing dots before your eyes? Ready for a video game with some personality? Yeah, and you'll still be waiting because it's Atari. Uh, whenever, whenever I would play with my snake shape, my mother would yell at me. Eh, you're gonna go blind. Um, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> in Amidar, you are first a gorilla trying to draw boxes inside a maze because you are. Ch- but it's not easy because you are chased by savage sentries every step of the way, just like in the arcade game. A gorilla drawing by... Is that like a monkey doing a math problem? Is that kind of the same thing? And on the back cover, it is the exact same Lego ad from last time. I'm starting to feel really sad for that kid. He looks like he's bored out of his mind. Well, he's built it, you know. His parents don't buy him real toys. <laughs> you know, what else is he going to do? He's, he's like a few years away from where masturbation's a viable option. Now take it outside so, and set it on fire. No, that's you and Chris. Yes. <laughs> hey, what happened to those toy cars we bought? Um, I don't know. I did, the neighbor stole them. <laughs> Cut to you and Chris standing over a fire going, yes, our dark lord, yes. We, <laughs> we burned the sacrifice to you. <laughs> um, That's pretty much it. Yep. Um, we have Elsewhere in the DC Universe. Yeah. A lot of good stuff this time out. I uh, love this Fury of Firestorm cover. That cool. Baby, the rain the rain must fall. Uh, I like the Justice League cover as well, because Perez was still doing the covers. Uh, Wonder Woman 300, which is important to us because... Ooh, I'm- hey, that's a Rich Buckler cover on that Justice League of America. Oh, it is? Yes, sorry? it is. Oh, it's got the atom jumping right into somebody's eye. That's just wrong, dude. Don't be doing that. 
Ah, that's hard to look at. Look at he's hitting that guy feet first right in the eyeball. That's kind of that's kind of smart afterwards. And then Superman's punching some guy right in the nuts. That's that's got to hurt. When Superman hits you in the crotch, that, you're having a bad day. <laughs> Superman nut shot. Um, <laughs> Wonder Woman 300, which is as I think I've mistakenly I think I've mistaken this this before, but this is definitely the very first appearance of the Fury from Earth 2, the daughter of the Earth 2 Wonder Woman. Dude, you were totally right about the Ed Hannigan covers. He did like every damn cover this month. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that that was that was done on purpose uh, from what I understand. Uh, okay. Uh, but you got the uh, Ed Hannigan Batman cover, which is awesome. I also like. Oh, the, really? I see. I don't. I, I never. Oh, I love that kind of stuff. I like Hugo Strange. I always thought he was a great Batman villain, but I I, I don't care for that cover. I have to be honest. He also did a great Batman fighting Solomon Grundy. Want pants too? On that one I do cover. like. Yeah. So that that's pretty cool. God, I love the logos. Um, Superman and Green Arrow team up in DC Comics Presents. That's an odd cover right there. I, I can't say as I'm really a fan of it. However, it's it's interesting because it's Don Newton, somebody I don't think of when I think of Superman or Green Arrow. So it's just very interesting. He's an interesting choice for the cover artist on that. I don't, I'm almost positive. He did not draw the interiors. Let's see. No, I'm wrong. He did draw the interiors on that. Don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm glad you finally admitted to it. Cause I've been trying to, <laughs> you know, yeah. Anyways. Um, I believe this is the issue of flash where they reveal who the eradicator is. And it turns out to be Hank Henshaw. And he goes on to be the uh, no wait sorry <laughs> what <laughs> the Eradicator Hank Henshaw was the cyborg Superman no no, no I know that no oh I see this guy's name is also the Eradicator yes. I gotcha uh, New Teen Titans number twenty eight the very first appearance of Terra it would turn out to be a dirty dirty slut I always thought her father should be Terra Man <laughs> oh God. The cowboy with the futuristic technology. I'm serious. He he could show up in one issue and she'd be like, Dad, what do you got? God, what do you got to show up and embarrass me? Jesus. Uh, what about Saga the Swamp Thing number 10? I like the cover. <laughs> okay, very good. Superman teams up, not hooks up, as I was about to say, with I Vampire and Brave and the Bold 195. Um,. Daring New Adventures of Supergirl cover is kind of interesting because you have Supergirl flying on top, and then on the in the, her reflection in the water below, it's Linda Lee Danvers, whatever her name was at this point. I really like this issue of uh, of Superman, Superman three eighty. This was a storyline that I liked a lot, where Superman is flying into the past, and Superboy is a trucking toward the future. I think he was headed to the Legion, if I remember right. And they collide. They mm-hmm. actually smash head on with each other so hard that they switch brains. <laughs> and uh, I'm not making that shit up, folks. I know. Superboy winds up with the brain of Superman, and Superman winds up with the brain of Superboy, and they, they wind up in each other's eras. And it was one of those, you know, Superman's got to relive the past, and, and Superboy, you know, has to be careful not to learn too much about his future type of stories. And I, I actually liked it. I thought it was really good. And when the uh, past Superboy 
when Superboy shows back up in his own body, he, he's wondering why Lana's like, we had sex last night. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Green Lantern number 161 in a, an Omega Men appearance, and let me tell you how not much I care at all about the Omega Men. I like the cover, though. It's a nice cover. It's a good... Uh, who did that? It's a Keith Hard. Pollard cover. Yeah. So. Fighting pretty- the Coneheads again. That's pretty cool. Uh, we got a Legion of Superheroes number 296 with a Robin Dies at Dawn type cover. Yeah. Uh, last issue of the Masters of the Universe uh, miniseries from DC. And this is pretty much the last time you're ever going to see He-Man and DC in the same room together until recently when they've been putting it, when Mattel had the license for both universes, basically. Uh, do you know who Faker is? Um, no, I don't think so. He looks just like He-Man, except he has orange hair and blue skin. He's like the 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 imperfect He-Man. Bizarro they're, He-Man. Yeah, they're actually giving. A, they're actually selling it at San Diego this year. A Bizarro Faker two pack. Ah. Go along with the Superman He-Man two pack, uh, the Lex Luthor Skeletor, the Hawkman Stratos, and the Aquaman Merman. So uh, how come there's never been a two pack two pack? <laughs> A Tupac Tupac? Yeah, exactly. It just seems logical, doesn't it? Yes. It'd be like Tupac and Superman. We were talking last time about the Jonah Hex covers. I kind of agree with you uh, that I, Ross Drew is not the yeah. proper guy to cover to draw the covers to Jonah Hex. I do not like that cover. It, it Yeah, it just doesn't work for me. And he looks a lot like the, uh, the future biker Jonah in that. Yeah, movie. I was about to say, which uh, I found like a couple – about three or four issues of in a 50 cent box recently, but I didn't pick them up. Oh, that's too bad. There's, you know, it, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, it's not for everybody. Clearly it, it was not a popular book. I will admit that. And, you know, some of the issues are, are better than others, but um, the ones, if you ever have a chance again, the ones that I would definitely recommend you pick up, I'm not sure how how many issues the first, you know, the opening storyline is, but the first issue is definitely good because the concept of the series was very good that there's this guy in the future that's pulling historical figures out of history. So the the setup in the first issue was really good where where he pulls Jonah out of the 19th century. That's a good issue. Um the two-parter with Jonah and the Batman of the twenty, you know, the mid twenty-first post-apocalyptic Earth, um, that's a good two-parter story. I liked a lot because I liked that Batman character and would really like to see him come back at some point. And then the very last issue of the series, which has a, I mean, it's got one of the great comic book uh, reveals in it. Just one of those like holy shit, that's a great idea moments in it, and I, I don't want to spoil it for you. So, But yeah, I mean, you, you could get away with just those four issues and, and not really re- need to read any of the rest of that series. Although I enjoy all of it, it's a guilty pleasure, if you know what I mean. Uh, well, you know all about guilt, so... <laughs> that would... Uh... God, why am I taking shots at you today? I apologize. Because you're a prick. Uh, um, the, the, well, this is true, <laughs> sir. So we're we're gonna we're gonna just go on then. Did we mention so. this awesome, awesome, awesome Mike Kaluta cover on uh, House of Mystery? What issue is this? Three thirteen. The Eye Vampire cover. That's awesome. Looks very nice. Yeah. Too bad they're 
looking like they're about to screw that concept up. Um, uh, and a neat World's Finest cover uh, done by Ed Hannigan. So, yes, he did draw everything. I think it was just easier for them. I mean, it, it was kind of going along the, the Marvel Comics line in the 70s where Gil Kane would draw all the covers, so everything kind of had a uniform look to it. Kind of makes sense that DC would do the same thing. I call so. that cover, I have no nose and I must sneeze. Well, sir, I do believe... I want you your have... opinion of okay. Action Comics, the cover to Action Comics 540. Um... It's a good cover. It's kind of like how I am most of the time at work when I have to deal with the public. (laughs) (laughs) Shut the fuck up! Ah! Yeah, it's pretty much, it is. It's Superman holding his hands over his ears and pretty much saying exactly that. I I really like this cover. I know you're not the biggest uh, Gil Kane on Superman fan. I actually Mm, like Gil Kane on Superman. It's a little scratchy looking. But I love how Doc, uh, Dr. Satan, is that his name, Dr. Satanus? Lord like, Satanus. Lord Satanus, that's it. Lord Satanus. I like how Lord Satanus looks in that. And I can't believe that they got away on the cover of a Superman comic drawing this girl essentially topless. Because, I mean, come on. I, I, any, any young man with a vivid imagination, I mean, that you're looking at her boobs and you're looking at her nipples right there. I'm sorry, but that's just how it's laid out on this cover. I mean, she's got – it's this girl with like, a, with like a flower pattern on each of her boobs on this like Dr. – not Dr. Strange. What's Dr. Strange's girlfriend's name? Clea. Clea, yeah. Clea, Clea. Mm-hmm. She's wearing a very like Clea outfit. And she's got these flowers over her boobs, but then, like, the center of the flower is right where her nips would be. So it's like, how did they get away with that on this cover? Uh, is that all for the um, for the elsewhere? Do you have yeah. any other covers you want to talk to? Him? I think I've talked enough boobs on, on the female characters' covers. So, so, yeah, we can move on to... We want to do some email? we got time. I was about to say, we've got time for just a couple of emails. And uh, I'll take the first one. All right. Charlie Niemeyer. Uh, it's thank you. And this is actually from November 30th, 2010. Holy crap. I just wanted to drop you a line to thank you again for this great podcast and welcome you back to the weekly grind. I recently started listening to old episodes again, and when I got up to the episode covering the beginning of All-Star Squadron, it made me think of my grandparents. Both of my grandparents served in the military in World War II, one in the Air Force and the other in the Army, while my grandmothers were back home working. As I've gotten older, I've found myself more interested in their stories from this time period, and now that I am so far from any of them, my mom's mom lives in Annapolis, Maryland, my dad's parents live in Palm Bay, Florida, and my mom's dad passed away in 2007. Listening to these stories set in the 40s reminds me of listening to some of their stories, especially the opening, because they all love to listen to the kind of music you guys play after the main intro. Anyway, just wanted to thank you guys. Congrats again on resuming the show and Scott for getting paid to go to Disney World every day, <laughs> which must be cool. too cool for words. Hope your families have a great Thanksgiving, have a Merry Christmas, <laughs> and here's to a great 2011. <laughs> I feel uh, about that. That's a good email, though. That was a, it's a great story. That was. That was very cool. And it is cool getting paid to go to Disney World every day. Yeah, I... Um, I didn't. I never. I never talked to my grandfather about World War II. Uh, my my dad's dad, because he actually served in the Marines, 
and uh, I always got the sense that it wasn't something you talked to him about. I mean, I had to once for a um, for a class project. They wanted me to call up my grandparents, and I got to learn that my mom's dad didn't serve in the military, if I'm remembering correctly, because of uh, high blood pressure, I think. So I guess they don't want you stroking out on the uh, on the battlefield. Yeah, it's funny. It's something I never really thought about before, but I don't think my mother's father served either. And now I I got to get that. So I need to know why, you know, because back then it was one of those things where, you know, every able-bodied man. So I'm wondering, did he and I just never knew it or did he not and why not? You know, so, yeah, I'll have to find that. I'll find yeah, out. Medical reason. I mean, oh, yeah. declared 4F, not just because they were skinny 98-pound weaklings. Right. So. <laughs> Right. I, I I literally have not a clue about that. Um my other grand my uh grandpa Gardner, uh yeah, he most definitely served. He was uh one of those that stormed the beach at Normandy and lived to tell about it. Uh the problem with that is that he didn't talk about it. He he did not tell about it. Um No, a lot of those guys won't either. If, right. if they if they saw some serious shit, they usually don't talk about it. My understanding is that once or twice uh, you know, because some of my uncles, because uh, I can remember, you know, at, at the funeral for, for my grandfather and everything, I can remember some of my uncles sitting around and we were all, you know, just reminiscing and telling stories, most of which were, were very humorous and that sort of thing. But I remember, you know, when, when this conversation would take a serious turn, some of them telling, hey, you know, did dad ever tell you about that time, blah, blah, blah. And some of the stories were just hair raising, you know, the the things that he saw and lived through. Yeah. During the war. And I, I, one of the my understanding is that the biggest reason he didn't talk about it is that he made fast friends with with some guy that he went through like basic and everything and, and went overseas with and everything. And he s- watched the guy die. And I, and it just really, you know, he was a young man. You know, he was you know, I'm sure he was just a kid, you know, and uh, and it affected him for you know the whole rest of his life. So it was one of those things where you had to get him drunk or in the right mood, you know, to, to get him to talk about it. And, you know, and that guy really liked Christmas trees. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I love that story, by the way. That's why I keep bringing it up. Um, now my, my, my Papa John, my dad's dad. Um, I love his pizza. (laughs) He, um, he was a Marine. Sitting in a boat, waiting to invade when the bomb went off, as I've mentioned before. So, and my dad was telling me at one point, uh, at one point, this was a year or so before he died, but he was in the hospital having some surgery, and he would just start talking about things, about the the weird crap that he saw during the war, and you know, <laughs> but I never I never brought it up, so. You don't ask. I mean, I remember one time I uh, I asked him if he had seen Save it Pri- Saving Private Ryan, and he said, no, I lived it. And even though he didn't storm the beach of Normandy, it was a similar experience. So, Right. Well, let's, let, let's stop talking about the depressing stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> We've got – it's so wild here that the, the emails jump from uh, Charlie's in, in November – of last year to this one's June 20th of this year. So it's like a six month, seven month, no, six month, six month gap here where, uh, what, what happened? 
Um, anyway, this one is from... Oh, this must be a new listener. Jose A. Rivera. Never heard of him. Um, says, regarding the discussion of Blue Beetle as a legacy character, he says, Hey guys, in episode 44, you talked about the Blue Beetle as a legacy character and how certain white characters are pushed out to make room for ethnic characters. First, allow me to say I'm not mad, nor will this be a pissed off how dare you letter. Uh Uh-oh, I hear a big old butt in there. It's not. I just wanted to write to give you the perspective of someone who is Hispanic. Growing up, uh, Blue Beetle was Ted Cord, and white or not, I loved Ted. Everyone always remembers him fondly from the JLI with Booster Gold. Uh, I'm one of them, but what uh, what I loved about Ted wasn't his skin color, but his character. I loved that Ted was taking over from Dan Garrett, the pre- previous Blue Beetle, both honoring his legacy, uh, but going his own way. Whether it was in his own series, his time with the JLI, the Jurgens Justice League, Extreme Justice, his cameo appearances, and his time in Birds of Prey where he fell for Barbara Gordon. If it had tended it, I was a happy camper. Then Countdown to Infinite Crisis happened. I remember buying it was when I was in college. I was in my creative writing class uh, when the dick, dickhead who sat in front of me uh, also bought the comic the same day and showed me the big moment of that issue before I even had the chance to read it. Oh, that would piss me off. In the middle of the day, just before class, I had to see Ted Cord uh, get his brains blown out by Maxwell Lord. And I couldn't even begin to tell you how pissed off I was. Pissed off that this guy just showed me this huge, huge moment, not taking into consideration... Yeah, why can't I read tonight? Not taking into consideration I didn't read the issue yet, but also that DC killed Ted. Yes, I got to read the issue, and it turned out to be damn good Blue Beetle story. That issue shows Ted to be the intelligent and courageous character he always was, and was slowly becoming uh, my favorite Blue Beetle story until I got uh, to the ending and remembered what I had seen in class, making my reading experience all the more tragic. When I heard about the next Blue Beetle, I had the same reaction. Oh, great, a minority character for the sake of having one. Because it was a Blue Beetle, not named Ted Cord, I was very dismissive of... I've heard this name pronounced so many different ways. Is it Jamie Reese or Jaime? Jaime. Jaime Jaime Reyes. Reyes. All right. Uh, A scarab that becomes armor? Who the hell does he think he is? Because he's certainly not the Blue Beetle. But then I had a thought. Back when Ted Cord took over, there must have been this uh, the same. There must have been some Dan Garrett fans consu- confused and or pissed off. There were people that gave Ted a chance, even though he wasn't Dan. So why can't I do the same for Jaime? And with that, I picked up issues of the New Blue Beetle, and wouldn't you know it, Jaime Reyes grew on me. As a third generation Puerto Rican. I can say that my Spanish is terrible. I personally can't stand when people get on a soapbox about their heritage. But seeing a Hispanic character was nice in that the last one I remember was Vibe (laughs) from the Justice League Detroit era. And look how that turned out. Just because Jaime was Hispanic didn't mean I was automatically going to like him. He had to earn the title of Blue Beetle as well as get my respect. Thankfully, the writers did that and more. His appearances in Booster Gold where he briefly met Ted Knight, uh, or excuse me, Ted Cord rather, Ted Cord via time travel, were great as Jaime was in wonder of the man everyone kept comparing him to, while Ted was thrilled someone not only managed to get Dan Scarab to work, 
but also he went on uh, went his own way like he did when he started out. Scott, you uh, you know you're a good friend, but in this one instance, I hate to break it to you, the Blue Beetle is a legacy character. Uh, it's not a conventional legacy, as every person to adopt the name has done something different, but they all do it for the same reason. They acknowledge those who came before them while doing their own thing. So to me, it doesn't matter what skin color the person carrying the mantle is. So long as they are a good character, uphold the tradition set by the previous man, have an occasional team-up with Booster Gold, and make me pump my fist and smile every time they do something heroic, I'm all for it. Thank you guys for letting me express my side of the argument. Sincerely, Jose A. Rivera. I only vaguely remember the discussion that all this came out of. I'll be perfectly honest about it. So if I said something that that offended or whatever, I sincerely apologize. I think the point I was probably getting at, and again, like I said, I only vaguely remember this this conversation, was that it just it bothers me, and I you know while I I will freely admit that I have trouble you know imagining what it must be like to be a different ethnicity I just I I can't help but feel like a like a a sense of uh I don't know like embarrassment or outrage for them when it just seems such an obvious ploy by by comics companies when they take character X and replace him with some other ethnicity, and it seems it uh, it just seems like quota filling to me, or, or something like that. And and it's I I just I'm bothered by that, and they've done it so many times. So that was really my beef with this, and it bugs me with Blue Beetle because I did I was a big fan of the the Ted Court Blue Beetle because I was a fan of all the Charlton characters that DC scooped up back in the '80s, and I've slowly seen every one of them. Uh, drop off and be replaced by somebody else, usually a, a different ethnicity. And that just bugs me it, because it just seems blatant and obvious and uh, and, it, and it's borderline insulting. It's like, what was wrong with Blue Beetle, you know, Ted Kord? What was wrong with the question and some of these other characters? And I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a Charlton character that still exists the same way in current DC as when they were brought over from Charlton. They, it seems to me that they've all been killed off and replaced, haven't they, at this point? Um, not Nightshade. Talking about Carlton characters, right? Yeah, because there was, there was Blue Beetle, Nightshade, the question. Nightshade, I forgot about Nightshade. Peacemaker's been replaced. Um, Judo Master's been replaced. Yeah. There's somebody else I'm forgetting, too. But it was basically it was the Law, you know, the, that team from Law. And they've all been uh, they've all been wiped what out and replaced. What a awful series that was. Yeah, I kind of like that, but only because <sighs> I, I was a big fan of those characters. Granted, it well, it didn't change the world, but I, I kind of like. Oh, Captain Adam was the other one. Captain Adam, which has sort of been changed, but you know that's just because they just keep screwing around with that character, and they're. It, it seemed like they finally got the guts to kind of do what they were originally intending to do with the Armageddon thing and then it was too little too late because nobody gave a shit anymore about that when it finally happened, you know? No, I, I was know. really excited um, for for that series and it turned out to not be what I like. I didn't like it. So. But, I don't know, did I make an argument that Blue Beetle was not a legacy character? Because... 
I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember that. I remember talk. I remember us talking about the whole ethnicity. You know, the eth- we 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 just talked about we 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 were talking about the fact that we didn't like the fact that it wasn't so much that we didn't like legacy characters, but when it seems blatantly pandering to be politically correct. Right. Yeah. That that was more the point. Yeah. Because, yeah, as far as legacy characters go, yeah, I like legacy characters. I, I think that's what, for a time, made DC very different from Marvel, was that they had that well to draw on, and so I like that sort of thing. I just don't like when they you know, when they take character X out of play so that they can replace him with you know, somebody of a different ethnicity just so that they can have a more culturally diverse cast of characters. Because it comes off as... It just comes off as, uh, and, and, and it comes off obvious, you know, that that's what they're doing. Whereas I'm more of the of the opinion that, you know, you you should try to be original. You should try to, you know, create something that feels organic, you know, mm-hmm. so that so that you know you have an an ethnic group that can look at character, you know, this new character, this exciting character, and go, hey, that's our guy. You know, rather than, oh, you know, this is a hand-me-down from the white man. Or, well, I don't know how, you know, I'm just saying that that's how it seems. <laughs> hand-me-down from the white The white man's keeping us down. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know, honestly how other people feel about that. It's just, it's one of those things I look at and I, I feel kind of embarrassed about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that there's so many... Black characters, I'll, I'll use black just as, a, as an example, black characters in comics that are hand-me-downs from white characters, you know, that started out as as a, as a white character or a white legacy, and then they were just kind of passed out, and it's like, come on, can't we have some exciting, there are exciting black characters, you know, can't we, but hang on, can't we have more original ones? Why do they just have to be a costume that was handed off from some white character? And, and, and probably, so that, probably the thinking there is is that Blue Beetle is a recognizable name. Oh, well, sure, I understand the whole you know name recognition and brand recognition and all that, but but still, you know, it, it's like I don't know. It, it's hard for me to. I guess it's just hard to verbalize my my feelings on the whole thing because I'm trying so hard not to offend. I because I, I I don't want this to to become an offensive racial thing, but I feel offended for my friends and, and, and people that are of other ethnicities because it, it, I, I'm, I'm surprised if they're not offended by it, you know, because I would be, you know, if the tables were turned and every character, you know, predominantly in comics, every character was green, you know, and, me as a white person, I finally get a white superhero and it's, you know, the, you know, the green Pelican, you know, decides that he's going to hang up his, his cape and cowl and he's going to pass it off to, to, you know, the white guy. So now the white guys finally got, you know, a, a place in comics. It's like, well, I don't want my guy to be the fucking green Pelican. I want him to be, you know, his own character. I want to have him stand, you know, my, the, the guy that represents me to stand, you know, toe to toe with the other people that make up, you know, the, the league of green people or well, well, you know, I don't know. It's just, am I making any sense or am I just rambling like an idiot? Uh, no more than usual. <laughs> so, 
So I don't know. Anyway, I appreciate uh, I appreciate Jose's uh, perspective on this because I, that was I, a good perspective. Yeah, it I mean, is. It is a really good perspective. I, I like uh, I like where he's coming from on this because I have been. Uh, I will admit I've been kind of closed minded when it comes to these characters because another perfect example is uh, is Firestorm because I I gave I never gave that character any chance whatsoever you know the the new one the new version and it's not because he's black it's just because i wanted ronnie raymond you know and so it's probably not fair for me to outright just dismiss and and really hate that character only because he's not the character i want him to be you know he everybody says that the new one's a really good guy so i i guess i gotta get over my uh I was going to say prejudice. It's not a prejudice, but my uh, expectations not being met and, and see if, you know, the new character will be something that I actually like. Whereas I feel like I did kind of give this uh, Jaime Reyes character a try and I just, I didn't like it, but it wasn't any, anything to do with his ethnicity. It was, I didn't like the direction they went with the, with the character. And so I don't like the whole armor thing. And I really don't like the look. Do you like the look of the new blue beetle? That's not a bad look. I just I just didn't care for the book. Um, I can't really think of anything specific about it that made me go, God, that sucks. But it just wasn't something. I mean, I, I bought like the first six issues. Yeah. Uh, and then just went, man. You know, I am just I am just reading too many books. I've got to I've got to back off on this a little bit. So. Yeah, I just it felt too much to me like like concepts I'd seen before of. You know, some kid finds item X that, you know, changes him into other, you know, it's almost like the the hero for, uh, what was it, uh, Dial H for Hero or, you know, something, it was that sort of formula all over again. Whereas I liked the class, you know, well, what I consider the classic Blue Beetle, you know, where it was a guy who invented himself as a hero and had the bug and all that. I liked that better, you know. Because that actually is very close to how you were describing the tarantula, you know, self-made superhero, you know, just decided to do it because it was he had the money to do it and sounded like it would be kicks. You know, I like that kind of origin for a hero. It's not too complicated. Well, that is it for this time. As usual, the issue of All-Star Squadron we covered has not been reprinted. Ever. Damn it. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook, to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and 
www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. How they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to Bay.